Welcome to the Time Bubble Podcast, the only podcast out there where the guests get to travel in time. I'm your host, Jason Ayres, and this week I'm very pleased to welcome my good friend, Mr. Sam Lowry. How are you, Sam? Hi, Jason. I, I'm, I'm pretty well, thank you. Recovering from a uh, bout of uh, man flu over the weekend, but um, otherwise fine. Nice to be here. Uh, I, yes, Manfred, I thought you were going to say hay fever then, because every episode I've recorded so far has been beset by at least one of us suffering with hay fever. But uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're well. So Sam is a property developer and also a professional sailor with many years of experience uh, working on boats, uh, including travelling around the world, which I think we may hear about later on yes that makes me sound a lot better than uh, a lot more exciting <laughs> and interesting than i am but um yes it's good to hear <laughs> excellent okay well uh just to uh recap the format of the show because it is a relatively new show so we may have some new listeners the time bubble podcast is based on concepts in my time bubble books giving guests the opportunity to travel back in time revisit any free days that they wish of their lives. We also have the opportunity to go back and fill somebody else's shoes and to visit any place in history that the guest may choose. Without further ado, let's get on. And Sam, tell me about the first day that you would like to go back to. Right, well, day one, in chronological order, day one would be take me back to school uh, I went to an all-boys boarding school, and when I was about 14 or 15, they introduced day girls for the first time. And um, as you might imagine, that caused quite a lot of um, intrigue. Um, <laughs> and there was a very, there was a very pretty, uh, um, frankly, to be honest, any girl got a lot of attention, but there was a very pretty girl in my class called Leonie Potts. And um, she sat next to me in English, in triple English, on a Wednesday afternoon. And um, she um, she was very gorgeous. And um, at some point during our brief school career together, she took an interest in me and used to gaze at me for um, an excruciating two hours every Wednesday afternoon. Um, and I was, for a very long time, absolutely terrified of even looking back at her because I... Having been in a boys' school for many years, I was um, uh, girls were a completely different species. I can and, certainly, uh, I can absolutely empathise with that because I also was at an all boys school, uh, but sadly, no girls were introduced during my time there. So my uh, my experience um, with with girls was probably even less than than yours at that age. But I do recall that being fourteen or 15 the whole concept of uh you know even attempting to approach a, a girl was quite terrifying yeah I, I it was and i mean i'm sure she was very lovely and um I, I i i obviously spoke to her over time but very little and i even though she was making it plainly obvious um um that she was interested in um uh in me i I was so desperately shy that I never made a play, and I, I um, and I, if I had to go back in time, 
at that part of my life, then I think um, that would that would probably be one of the um, one of the things I'd like to rectify. Um, and um, I'm sorry, Le- Leonie, if you're now living with your cats <laughs> at the age of um, 57, living with your cats um, or still thinking of me, then I, I'm sorry, I, I, it was all my fault. But I, I suspect that, um, I suspect she's gone on to greater and better things. It was very much like, um, I don't know if you've ever seen um, uh, Patang Yang Kipperbang, the um, the TV series, though it was a TV play that was on back back about that time, back in the 70s. And I, um, I haven't, no, but uh, I shall look it up. It's exactly like, it, it, at the time, it resonated strongly. There's a very awkward 14-year-old lad uh, who uh, has a female friend, that, uh, and there's clearly something between them, and uh, it's the awkward sort of teenage throes of puberty and what have you. But um, I then had to go through the the horrors of seeing her go out with a string of my more confident mates who then treated her abysmally and then told told terrible stories which were probably uh, in 90% of the cases not true so um unfortunately sorry Leonie um but um yes uh, i if i could go back in time that's one thing that i would go back to rectify certainly that does seem to be the uh, inevitable outcome of amorous disappointments. Uh, if there is somebody that you like, certainly in my experience, they they will always end up with the worst possible person just to <laughs> rub your nose. I don't think they do it deliberately. Perhaps it's it's fate. But um, the, when you describe that, um, I, I know you mentioned that the the show that you watched. Uh, it also made me think of the book High Fidelity by. Nick Hornby because yes. uh, certainly the, um, some of the early scenes in that were I, I think there was a story where he went back to a similar sort of age and uh, and then she went off with um, some really awful guy so perhaps this is something a rite of passage that we all have to go through. I suspect so I mean I've, I, I would be lying if I said that that's not the only regret I have <laughs> in the uh, in the romantic department but it's probably the most family friendly one um, yes. but, uh, <laughs> but yes i suspect um yeah these these things these things are sort of cliches and uh, what have you for a reason aren't they because um yeah we all go through them to some extent or another sad but true indeed um uh, one would hope eventually uh we would grow out of it and gain that confidence uh, uh it would be nice to like you say if you could go back now with that confidence and experience uh it would be so different but yes, uh, it, it, it's funny, isn't it? I, there was that song, and I've forgotten this, what it's called, but it's a, a California style, probably out in the sixties or seventies, and it's the it's this sort of guru type, and he's talking and he's saying, um, one of the things is he says you're um, always look after your teeth, and um, you're never as it's all basically truths. Um, yeah, you're, you're never as fat as you think you are. Um, I, I actually I disagree with that. I think you can be as fat as you think you are. <laughs> Um, so, but but yeah, it, it's a, it's a you know, and I saw Laura Southern, who's a, a, somebody I follow on Twitter, said only yesterday, um, your um, your insecurities are will always make you uglier than the thing you're insecure about, or less attractive. She didn't say uglier. That your insecurities will always make you less attractive than the things you're insecure about, which I thought yeah. had some some sense to it. But yes. that is a twenty six year old attractive blonde girl saying that. So <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's very difficult uh, for, from our perspective, but uh, it, it seems to me that as one's uh, looks and physical condition 
decline as invariably they do with age what one one's mental um capacity and decision making improves and it's this classic thing that you know by the time you have the the confidence and the persona um to do something about these things uh yeah your body and uh, has let you down so yeah there's never a right time is there? there's, there's not something... There, there, yeah. there must be a perfect age, but I, I think somehow I missed it. <laughs> yeah. I, well, and also, I've on the on the weight thing. My my weight all my life has gone up and down and up and down, and it's currently at an up. But um, uh, and, and it does make a difference to your confidence. Um, you know, because you you're aware, obviously, if you're walking around um, overweight. But um, that's never coincided with my. Um, so th there was a time when I used to drive a very nice car and I was doing quite well for myself, but I was also, um, probably because I wasn't very happy doing it. I was, um, I was, uh, somewhat large, let's put it that way. Um, and then there's other times when I was actually having quite a hard time and I hadn't got a penny to my name and what have you. And yet I was, um, pretty svelte and athletic. And I think, um, it, it would, it's quite nice in a way because you've always got something that's in your favor, but it would yes. be quite nice to have overlapped the svelte athletic with the um, with the relatively wealthy um, uh, sports car driving just for a little while that would you, have been nice. You can never get them all in sync at the same time, can you? No, unfortunately not. Not unless you're um, <laughs> not unless you're I don't know George Clooney or something. But uh, indeed, yeah. <laughs> excellent. Hey right. Well, that's good. Let's move on to your uh, second day. We've had your school days. Um, where are we going after that? What, right, second day. So this is more, um, I'm sure we've all had some of these coulda, woulda, should you things. Um, I was made redundant from my job in 1992. And um, as part of that, I got quite a significant redundancy payout at the time, which was about £10,000. And I was a bit stuck as to what to do. So I went off and did went on holiday for a month and um, just chilled. And then I came back feeling fairly confident that I was going to um, just breeze back into a job. And um, I don't remember 1992, but it it, it wasn't to be the case. Things I were do. Bit, uh... Uh, that was there was a recession around that time, wasn't there? There was indeed. Yes. Uh, following on from the sort of late 80s house price boom, uh, I recall because I bought my first house in '91. And it immediately plummeted in value by about a quarter, <laughs> leaving me in negative equity. So, so that was a bad decision at the time for me. Well, we share that because I, I I bought a house in eighty nine, July eighty nine, which I think was almost the peak. Um, but against the advice of my um, my financial advisor, who was actually selling me the mortgage, don't you think, wouldn't you, that if the guy that is making a commission selling you the mortgage is saying to you are you really sure you want to do this um you should take the hint but um at the time there was a bubble and everyone was just so keen to get on the ladder um funny that these things repeat themselves that um yeah i was so desperate i was in property as well i was in commercial property um and and oh, anyway so no i did the same i lost yeah i lost 25 percent on the house and um I actually sold it at a loss after ten years, so. Um, but that wasn't that. That was a pretty big um, screw up, which um, yeah. I could have gone back to, but I've obviously tried to block that out of my memory. But um, with the with the ten thousand pounds I got from from um, being canned, I um, I I wasn't sure what to do, and I thought, well, I can either set up my own business, you know, from a bedroom or whatever, or I can um, 
or I can go a bit wild and just make a, an investment. I was working at the time, I was acquiring um, prime retail shops for um, Kentucky Fried Chicken. That's uh, what I was doing when I was bed redundant. Okay. So I thought, so I knew the, I knew all of the, the top 100 high streets in the UK, like the back of my hand, knew them all really well, knew where all yeah. the best spots were. And in 1992, you could guarantee that the best prime pitch um, for every town worth being in in the UK uh, next occupied it with a really good shop. Yeah. And um, at the time, they were really suffering like other people, but they were particularly seemed to be suffering. And uh, their share price was four pence. And I think it had been about six pounds, um, not six pounds, um, 60 pence. And it was um, four pence. And I thought... Um, I thought, well, even if they... I mean, this is limited knowledge, obviously. I didn't know enough about everything. Yeah. I, I thought, well, the the real estate portfolio alone, um, I mean, most of it's leasehold, but just the fact that they held leases on all these properties, somebody's going to buy them um, if they're going to go bust just for the portfolio, surely. I mean, there's just such a fantastic portfolio. You'd never be able to acquire all those sites in one go again, you know, to take the leases on all of those sites. Shall I put... Ten thousand pounds into into the shares in next, and I undenied about it for um, a couple of weeks probably, and in the end I decided not to, and I started my own business, which transpired was did me okay. But but had I invested that ten thousand pounds in nineteen ninety two at four pence a share, I would now be sitting on seventeen and a half million pounds worth of um, next shares. Wow, um, yeah, <laughs> plus plus the dividends over all those years as well. It so, seems uh, it, it seems incredible that they they could go so low because you're you're quite right about the the sites. I'm just thinking about uh, next on Corn Market Street in Oxford, which is bang in the centre. And also, I buy a lot of clothes from them because I've always felt that that you know they were always good quality and they do mm -hmm. do last. And it's interesting, isn't it? I, I mean. The stock market is a very strange thing. Whenever I have dabbled into it, um, I seem to have the reverse of the Midas touch. I, I can bring down a company just by <laughs> buying some shares in it. So I found myself with um, with redundancy and buying and selling houses with uh, some money burning a hole in my pocket back in around 2007. And... Wow, did I burn through some of that? I, I decided to invest in the stock market seriously, and I bought into a, a, a portfolio of different companies, as they suggest you do. And mm -hmm. uh, without fail, uh, they uh, it it all went horribly wrong. As this was just before all of the crash started, so it was the worst possible time um, to to buy in. But uh, I, I recall certainly uh, Northern Rock. Uh, I only have to say the name and everyone remembers uh, yeah. was one that I put money into and that was a few thousand and uh, I never saw any of that again. Yeah. Well, I I, I put, um, I think it was £3,000 into Northern Rock the day before they um, went through. And the reason I did it, probably the same as you, I looked at it, it was because it was clear everything was going wrong. And um, I think at the same, within the same week, the chancellor of the three chancellors of the exchequer have been on news nights saying that um, 
uh, if the government don't do something, cash points will be drying up within the next 24 yep. hours. And I remember thinking, well, if they're saying that out loud, ex-chancellors, when they're supposedly supposed to stop panic, they must think we're on the edge, you know, on the coast of panic here and it's all going to go wrong. So I, I thought, well, Northern Rock, I'm probably the timing slightly out, but I remember thinking with Northern Rock, they're not going to let a bank go because if they let a bank go, there'll be a rush. Yeah, and I, and I thought this this was my logic, and probably the same as you, I guess. And I, yeah. I, I thought right, so I put uh, so I bought three grand's worth of Northern Rock shares at pennies on the pound. I can't remember what it was, and um, yes, the next day they let the bank go. The only bank they let go. Yes, <laughs> I think we made a mistake, which is commonly referred to in stock trading as catching a falling knife. Right. Yes. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I haven't really dabbled in the stock market since, and I'm not sure that I ever would again. Uh, you know, looking back at that time, and also if you think about after 9-11, both times the stock market effectively halved. I think if if anything, some disaster befell again, and again the FTSE went down from 7,000 to, to 3,500, uh, then perhaps that would be the time to do it because I would figure at that point that either it's going to go back up or everything's going to fail anyway, so it won't matter. Exactly. I think that's where we are, isn't it? It's got to be that kind of... Now, it's yeah. a, I mean, the only thing, it's like gold. I was thinking about buying some... Well, I've got a little bit of gold, and I mean tiny amounts. I'm not talking about um, substantial amounts of money. But I did think, shall I buy some gold? It's the last time I looked, about week, two weeks ago, it's at an all-time high. And it's at twice what it was when it was an all-time high in 2008, or around that time. And at the same time, I bought some gold then at about $700 an ounce, and it went up to $1,000. Yeah. I did quite well on that. And then I thought, $1,000, highest it's ever been, and I sold it. And um, it went up and down and up and down and up and down. And then, had I just held on to it, it would have doubled in value over the last 12 years. So, um, you know, there, sometimes you just have to, if you're going to invest, you have to just put money away, I think, and just go... I'm confident in the long term that'll work. I'm now going to leave it there and forget about it. But you have yeah. to have excess. You've got to have excess cash to do that, haven't you? That's the only thing. You have, uh, which I, with, which I've never really had. And I think <laughs> ult yeah. ultimately, trying to forecast uh, years ahead is like trying to forecast the weather three months from now. It it, exactly. it just generally doesn't work. Okay, so let's move on uh, to your third day. So, uh, what have we got next? Right, well, this was a personal thing, and this is one I'd just like to go back and enjoy the feeling again. So um, it's not a regret. Um, um, as you mentioned at the beginning, I, I was originally in property. Uh, that was my initial first career. And uh, I got sick of that, sold my business when I was 36, and I'm now 57. And since then, I've been sailing professionally. And um, I've done quite a lot of sailing in different parts of the world, probably about a quarter of a million miles or so. Wow. And... Um, Yes, it seems. I remember meeting people who had done that sort of mileage when I was first starting and thinking, how the hell do you do that? But yeah. of course, if you just sail a lot, you, you it, it clocks up. Um, and in um, in July 2012, I sailed back into the Solent um, in the south of England after 11 months having um, circumnavigated around the planet on a on a, a what was a yacht race. And um, and so early in the morning, about. 5.36 o'clock in the morning, sun up, sailed, a beautiful day, sailed it um, between the forts, past Portsmouth into the Solent, an empty Solent with a handful of boats, went past the finish line, finished gun, and um, 
left and came back into the circuit which I'd left um, 11 months previously on this race. So that was quite a spectacular experience. I have to admit that um, amongst others, amongst other men on the boat, um, I did actually have a more than a tear in my eye at that point because it was just... That's amazing. So was it quite a large boat? How, how many of you were there on hmm. board? So it's about 20 metres. So it's um, 68, 70 feet. Um, okay. There's... Um, on average, there's about 16 of us on board. Um, the race is split into eight legs, so that um, you, you, the first leg might be, for example, from um, from the Solent to uh, maybe to Rio de Janeiro or somewhere like that. Okay. Um, and then there's a core of the crew would stay on board that's called the Round the Worlders, and yep. uh, together with a professional skipper. And I was I was a mate basically, so I was a professional mate. Uh, so there's a, a skipper and a, and a mate, and then uh, everyone else is um, is um, amateur crew that have paid for the experience. They get trained, and then off they go and do it. Okay. So so does that mean that you can go ashore at the different ports, or are you on are you on board the whole time? No, you stop. Um, well, dependent on if you've had a problem at sea. So if you've had a major issue and you've and you're um, four or five days behind the rest of the fleet, then um, when you might the rest of the fleet might have left and you might have to turn up, revit, you know, uh, refill the boat with food and, and and water and what have you, and then go again. So which is horrendous. That means you could be at sea for uh, nearly two months potentially. Um, but uh, normally you're at sea for three or four weeks at a time, um, and then when you get to wherever you're going, you stop. Um, uh, and you get normally between five and eight days in port, and probably five out of those eight days are spent fixing the boats, getting more food, um, going on corporate days with because the boats are sponsored. So you take out your corporate sponsor for the day sailing and um, attending jollies. And it, it's actually I did the race again a couple of times with skipper um, since 2011-12, and actually I would say from a skipper's perspective, life's easier at sea than it is in port, because in port, there's so much pressure on you to get everything done. Whereas when you're at sea, there's a different kind of pressure, but um, you are, uh, you're doing, you know, you're, you're actually doing what you're supposed to do. So uh, the only the only caveat to that is if, if you have a particularly bad storm and you've got, um, you've got maybe six or eight amateur crew who could, you know, I mean, some of them are very good still, but there are six or eight amateur crew on deck in a big storm um, there's always that concern that you're going to hear, you know, a man overboard or somebody gets hit by something or um, it's very, there's a million different ways of hurting yourself on a big yacht at sea. So um, so that that is a concern. But um, yeah, so you, when you get into port, you have, your, you have a little bit of time off. You get a bit of time for beer and steak and uh, socialising and then you're back off on the next race. Um, so there's eight legs. It's about 43,000 miles, I think, in total because the race goes back on itself. So... It's about twenty-three to twenty-six thousand miles to go around the world. So that's all. That's almost a double circumnavigation. If yes, you so add the mileage. Yeah. Exactly. And if you went round, if you were able to sail around the world on the equator, I think it's twenty-six thousand miles from memory. But um, yes, if you sail um, south, and obviously the further south you go, or the further north you go, the mileage reduces because you're sailing around a smaller part of the circle. But then um, we. Uh, on the race that I was on, we sailed west and went back. So we sailed to Australia, then we sailed west again, back towards China, and then sailed east again, back towards the States. So we add quite a lot of mileage to the to the race. Um, but it was the most spectacular 
I didn't know I was going to do it three three weeks before. I just happened to have moved out of my house and was I didn't have any particular responsibilities and I I applied for the job last minute and um they um they said come and see us. So I went to see them. They offered me the the position and um they said right you better get your US visa because we're leaving in I think it was two and a half weeks. And um and that was it. And uh, no, I absolutely enjoyed it. I had a heck of a lot of um, adventures and experiences and scary moments and fun moments and um, and teachable moments, if you like. Human uh, humanity, learning about humanity was a big thing. And um, and yeah, finishing it for that day. Finishing was the shortest day of my life. I mean, we arrived at about five thirty-six o'clock in the morning. Uh, beautiful sunshine. We sailed with a spinnaker up uh, with a couple of boats full of family and friends around us. Got to cows, dropped the spinnaker, nearly forgot the spinnaker was up actually, dropped the spinnaker at cows, and then we grouped up with the rest of the fleet and we um, we motor sailed up um, towards Southampton, which was that Finnish port, uh, surrounded by well, thousands of people, and um, and it was it was just amazing, the most spectacular yeah. thing ever, really it, good. It, it's a, an amazing achievement and an amazing experience, and there are perhaps so many of us that uh, in our whole lives, we won't do anything like that for one reason or another. So, um, you know, fair play to you. Well done. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's opportunity, isn't it? And, and I think the thing that most people, it's, it's saying yes to opportunities and, and, and getting it right to say no to other opportunities. And that's of course, to a large extent is I think fluke, isn't it? So, um, but if you get, I was just the right time, right place, said yes and um didn't regret it so it was absolutely great and very lucky to have been able to do it so um no that was i would thoroughly recommend from you know if you have the opportunity and you're not tied by other things which are more important in the long run like you know family and stuff then um then uh, yeah go for it why not excellent right well we've heard about the three days you'd like to go back to and they were all very interesting the next part of the podcast is where you get the opportunity to tell me who, past or present, you would like to go to step into their shoes for a day and why. Right, okay. This was a tricky one, but um, probably won't surprise you that they're naval orientated. Um, okay. Um, I decided on Shackleton. And um, Shackleton on the 30th of August 1916. And... Um, the reason I specify the 30th of August 1916 is that that is the day that he got back to Elephant Island and rescued the remaining crew uh, from his ship that had uh, founded on pack ice um, down in the uh, Antarctic the year or year and a half, two years beforehand. Oh, yeah, it so, was stuck there for a lot. I, I've read about this. This is the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition. Am I right? Yeah, that sounds right. Yes, and he yes. The, the great plans to do uh, basically uh, to cross the Antarctic. There was an awful lot to it. There were people coming from Australia, doing halfway across and drop and putting in food stations and then retreating. That's a whole other story where people were killed and all sorts of things. Um, and then yes, his the idea was that he anyone who you should read South, which is the the book about this thing. It's it, I would say it is the most amazing boy's own heroic story um based on failure that you will ever read i mean he 
I can't recall the number of people that he took on the expedition on his in his band, which was the main group. But um, it was on um, Endurance, was the ship. They sailed down to um, South America, and they left South America and sailed south to get to Antarctica, to their base camp, so that they could cross the Antarctic. And on the way down there, they stopped at Elephant Island, which is a small island in the Antarctic, um, sort of just on the edge of the Antarctic um, uh, belt, if you like, um, in the Southern Ocean. Southern Ocean, I know from experience, is an extremely inhospitable place. And um, they got down there. Um, they had a chat with the whalers there, and the whalers warned them that uh, it was a particularly bad year for ice. Um, but they pushed on, they went south, and they got stuck in ice. That wasn't the end of the world because they knew that uh, I won't tell you the whole story because it'd go forever. But they, they it wasn't yep. the end of the world. Um, but uh, they were planning for that. But unfortunately, the ice broke up the ship, so they had to abandon two lifeboats on the ice. They dragged the lifeboats about six, eight hundred miles across the ice until they got to the sea that the ice was where it had broken up. They then um, they made up uh, three boats and they sailed across the Southern Ocean, which is just mind-boggling that they would do this in open boats. They got to Elephant Island and made made the shore. Uh, this all took about 18 months to do. Um, they got to shore, all still alive. They then, he, he decided that the only way they were going out of this, because there's nobody living on that, on, was it Elephant Island? Anyway, whatever the yeah. island they were on. They had to then, um, they, they made one boat as indestructible as they could by putting a, a deck on it. And then he left um, for help and he sailed off and he got to um, I think that's when he got to Elephant Island and he um, had to cross uh, the effectively the Alps uh, of, of that island which was uncharted with three uh, two or three other men they they got to almost dead they got to the whaling station they'd left about two years previously um, raised the alarm raised another ship uh, courtesy of I think Argentina or Chile uh, and after three attempts, managed to get a ship back to Elephant Island, and he made landfall on the beach and rescued the remaining men that he'd left on Elephant Island, promising to go back to on the 30th of August, 1916. And the amazing thing about that whole thing is that he didn't lose one man in the I entire know. expedition. It, it seems incredible that they, they could survive so long. Um, I also find it incredible that this story... It is not more widely known. I mean, I recall from learning about Antarctic uh, expeditions in my youth, it's very much focused on Scott. And I recall when I was in New Zealand, I went to the the Polar Exploration Museum. And again, it was very much about, about Scott. And that's the one that most people would probably uh, recall more. Mm. Uh, possibly, I think, that because Scott's expedition ended in tragedy it's perhaps a more newsworthy story people perhaps overlook shackleton's uh success in in rescuing his men uh whereas the story of scott and you know the the famous story of captain oates going out in the tent seems to have captured people's imagination more exactly and also um not to be forgotten um first world war was just starting when they left and they were all members of the services and in fact offered the ship to um, to the Lord of the Admiralty, which was Windsor Churchill at the time, and Churchill said, no, continue. Um, so so I think there's probably an element of, well, there's millions of people dying you know, in France, and what do we care about um, uh, a few men down south? But I, I read this, because I knew I was going to be talking about this, I read this yesterday, it was um, 
absolutely cherry garrard said something which was um which i read on on wikipedia of all places talking about shackleton and he said um um scott for scientific method Amundsen for speed and efficiency but when disaster strikes and all hope is lost get down on your knees and pray for shackleton um i think that yes, says it all. Uh, sums it up brilliantly yeah, yeah. Okay. amazing leader amazing leader indeed Right, we've got about five minutes left. So finally, if you could go to any place in history, where would you go? HMS Victory, during the Battle of Trafalgar, uh, 21st of October, 1805. There's lots of other places that would be much nicer to be. Yes. And um, I'm not saying I'd want to go there. Um, I would like to know that it was for a day and I was going to come back again. So um, if you uh, happen to be standing next to Nelson at the wrong time and, uh, yeah. and you got killed, we could spirit you back here unharmed. Yeah. That would be nice. That would yes. be nice. I, I, you know, um, but I just think from an historical perspective, it's probably one of the key moments in British Empire, really. Um, and there's obviously lots of good and bad moments that happened in British Empire over the years, and we're supposedly... You know, I think too much remember, reminded to remember all the bad bits, but yeah, um, um, it's it's sometimes lost that the victory. First of all, Nelson was an incredible uh, leader and uh, seaman of his own. You know, and a great sort of um, leader and sailor. Um, he was he'd already won at the Battle of the Nile. Um, he'd had um, several other great victories up until that point. He was already a superstar, and what he did at the Battle of Trafalgar was amazing in terms of um, its its ruthlessness and brutality, but also in its effect on what was at the time the uh, modern world, which was sort of Western Europe, because he he pretty much single-handedly destroyed any chance of Napoleon taking over the rest of Europe. Um, uh, and most of his fleet. Um, uh, am I right in believing we didn't even lose a ship of our own? Um no, that we did lose anything. I, yeah. We we did extremely. I mean, it was an amazing tactic which he'd done. I think at the Nile as well, which is he sailed. I'm no great expert on this, but he's he sailed parallel um, because these ships can't go close to the wind. They're they're square riggers, so they can't sail close to the wind, which means go higher than ninety degrees to the wind, effectively. So um, you are limited in what you can do. So you've got to your tactics have to be born uh, based around what how you can sail your vessel and how quickly you can jibe or tack or whatever um and what he did which was fairly unknown at the time they used to just come along parallel to each other the fleet and then they just blew the hell out of each other and see who was left floating and um what he did that's simplifying things what he did was he sailed i think two he split his fleet and then they sailed par um perpendicular with the other fleet and went through the um through the fleet and basically unloaded their significant firepower through the aft of the enemy ships and um they're very you can imagine you've got thick oak on both sides but aft you have big windows and open decks and so he basically just destroyed um the flagship i think um in its first in his first yeah. uh, volley and the way that he you know um just the way that nelson led his fleet from the front and you know um sometimes displayed orders was very um brave in, in and um and resolute in what he did and and of course it's yeah just from a british perspective i don't think there's many 
British heroes that you would put above Nelson in terms of boy's own style um, heroic acts. I mean, he, he wasn't, I don't think he was a very nice man, having read his biography. Um, he was pretty pretty bad to his wife and, um, and his children, didn't treat them very well. Um, or Lady Hamilton's husband, but um, <laughs> but uh, but I think yeah. from you know in terms of great characters, I'd have liked to have been on that deck and seen how it all played out. Yes, it's a shame that it's so long ago we don't have any photographic um, evidence from from the the day. But I've seen lots of uh, contemporary paintings, uh, which uh, whether or not they have artistic lights, you know, with the sea ablaze and smoke everywhere, and it all looks very dramatic. So, well, there was a gale due in, so so the, the yeah. weather would have been changing. But yeah. I'd also just lastly, I, I have been on victory, like most most of us who have grown up in this country, and um, and I have stood as about an eight or ten year old. I've stood on the spot where where he died, and I remember at the time just being blown away by that connection with history. Excellent. Well, that's really interesting, Sam. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Uh, just before you go, um, if people want to look you up, I know you do podcasts and things yourself. Uh, where, where can they find you? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on YouTube with um, Vox Pop, which is, um, there's plenty of people called Vox Pop. You might have to search me out. Um, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Sam Larry, uh, Sam Larry Esquire, actually. Uh, Sam Larry ESQ. That's my... Um, that's my handle. So if you want to uh, follow me, I'm I'm um, I'm fairly verbose, as you might be able to tell. Excellent. Okay. Well, for the rest of the the listeners, uh, as you know, these episodes come out every Thursday at eight pm. So so look out for a, another one next week, and don't forget to uh, like and subscribe to the channel if you're watching on YouTube, or, or of course we are on Apple and all the other podcast uh, sites as well. So uh, that about wraps it up. Uh, thank you very much, Sam. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for having me on. And I think this is a cracking idea. Really nice uh, format. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.